I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. Jill, the meeting began last night with Chair Robinson discussing a new protocol for school committee questions in last night's meeting. Here's what she said. What we're hoping you will do is to ask your most burning questions first and then list anything else after you've gotten the first responses so that districts, you can put that on the record of questions that were not answered tonight, and then we will have the district answer those and get those answers back to all of us and to put it on, um, put it out for the public as well. So now there, it's interesting, Ross, it just, it's just, a, it's another complexity, I think, for folks in the public who are trying to participate. So if there are questions asked by school committee members, they ask great questions. Now we're not going to hear the answers publicly in real time. They're going to be cataloged somewhere. I I hope that's going to be in a very obvious spot because for those of us who pay attention to school committee, and there's lots of us out here in Boston and beyond, it's going to be important to be able to access that information. One of the key concerns that have been expressed in the past is members saying, I don't have the answers to the questions that I keep on asking meeting after meeting after meeting. And so how do we have accountability if we don't have those noted publicly somewhere? So this is something to pay attention to. We'll certainly pay attention to it. We'll see if this is a practice that occurs for multiple meetings in a row. We'll figure out where those things are, especially for this meeting, because this meeting, there were a number of things that were mentioned that would be answered in follow-up memos. Yeah, lots of questions. Yeah. We'll keep track of them. The meeting then went on to the superintendent's report where the superintendent began with an update on transportation and on-time performance. Yeah, this is a this is definitely a bright spot, Jill. On-time performance for transportation is 84% of buses are on time. 96% of buses arrived within 15 minutes of school starting and 99% of buses arrived within 30 minutes of school starting. In the afternoon, 83% of buses were on time, 95% buses arrived within 15 minutes of when they're supposed to, and 98% of buses arrived within the 30 minutes of when they're supposed to. It is reassuring, Jill, and basically, this is a huge improvement from last year. You know, the one thing I was thinking about as we were hearing this part of the report is we haven't heard anything about electric school buses Ah, in nearly a year, right? I think it was sometime last late fall winter when the superintendent and the mayor went for a ride around the city on an electric school bus and i think we used like seven million dollars for 20 buses i think we used part of the covid funding covid relief funding on on the buses so it's just interesting we haven't since that ride around the city and the boston globe article i i haven't heard anything else yeah, I, I wonder it, if they're even being used yeah and remember we own all our buses too so it'd be yeah. inter- just be interesting to see how many buses do we have driving around that are electric buses and how many more where are, are we storing them where are we plugging them in how long do they make it around the city on one charge what happens when it gets cold out yeah it is it's interesting okay anyway back to last night's meeting Jill the superintendent went on to discuss the exam school process so as you recall at the last meeting there was about an hour and a half discussion on the exam school application outcomes the superintendent said the district will come to the next meeting with data and context that members have been asking for, including a timeline for how the task force process went, how the decision was made ultimately to get to these 10 bonus points and the tier system. Again, Jill, this was all sort of up for debate at the last meeting, and nobody knew exactly how the policy actually got decided upon because there was a lot of changes at the last minute. So the superintendent said, I'm going to come back to you next week with a full memo on how this process unfolded. So member Cadet Hernandez uh, first asked this question, which led to an interesting back and forth between member Cadet Hernandez and the superintendent. 
on the exam schools with this memo that you're pulling together, and thank you for that, will it just explore history or policy recommendations, given some of the concerns raised? My understanding, and we've asked Attorney Mackey to also be involved in it, is that it will it will do both. The idea is to give glimpse into, since everyone has a different history of how this came to be, particularly on this committee, it'll give both the historical, the meetings, what happened, and then why, what rationale of policy change was recommended, like for what reasons. Copy. And then will it also include information? In our last conversation, we talked about not having the relationship with the state to get the student economic data that we know exists that allows us to understand that a school is Title I eligible. Will it also explore the process for shifting that relationship, that agreement with the state? Or are we just are we making an assumption that there is no universe where we could enter an agreement with the state to get that level of data to support a different right. admissions process? So, Ross, this question about student economic data that the state holds, but that the Boston Public Schools doesn't have access to until a student enrolls came up last week. And superintendent said this at that time that she said, basically, it's not doable to get information from the state. Again, we don't have that level of data because we don't have that relationship with the state. But then this week, she sort of kind of gave a different answer when Mr. Cardet Hernandez kind of poked at that again, implying that the district and the state should be able to, over some period of time, solve this issue. This will be an area that we will work to see what is possible, but it will require us a little bit of time to do so. Yeah, Jill, this doesn't seem too complicated to get this done. We heard a very definitive answer at the last meeting that it was impossible. You know, this is why we can't do it this way. We can't give the bonus points to the individual kids because we simply cannot get the data from the state. Then we hear from the superintendent that, in fact, that she thinks it may be possible. Didn't um, she work with Commissioner Riley totally. at one point in BPS? So what, what, she probably has a cell phone, I would imagine. Like, I bet can't, you can't she can call. call right. Yeah. I think Superintendent Skipper could call Commissioner Riley and ask, like, how can we get this done? Sometimes um, the bureaucracy should just melt away and yeah. we should just push things forward, especially on, you know, this This seems to be something that is not going to go away, both because there are members of the committee who are very concerned about it and because we heard, you know, a ton of public comment on it last night. It started, the night started with dozens of students who testified before school committee about unintended consequences. You'll remember Michael O'Neill said, you know, this we're going to approve this plan. There may be unintended consequences. We'll have to address those as they come up. The unintended consequences showed up at school committee last night, and this is what they said. I'm also an unintended consequence of the new policy. I'm also an unintended consequence of the new policy. I am here tonight to advocate on behalf of my sister, Isla, who is also an unintended consequence unintended consequence of the exam school policy, who have been and will be unintended consequences of this new policy. It is impossible for me to get into any of the exam schools because of your new policy requires a composite score of 100.2. And I mean really, truly impossible for me to get into BLS from my tier without bonus points. And then there was this sobering comment from a student who lives near Charlestown High School who was hoping to attend one of the exam schools. You say that there are alternatives for me, but my closest high school is Charleston High School, where this year's MCAS data showed that only 1% of students were proficient in ELA and 0% were proficient in math. How can you say that you'll provide me with quality education that is comparable to an exam school? Students also testified about the lack of offerings from other BPS high schools. 
There are no BPS high schools that, that have AP classes, clubs, and athletics, which is forcing me to apply to private schools that my single mother can barely afford. And we heard testimony about how students feel the policy is designed to exclude a targeted group of individuals. I am here tonight to advocate on behalf of my sister, Isla, who is also an unintended consequence. I'm also here to advocate on behalf of my other two sisters, who are going to be future unintended consequences. She's a straight-A student who has exceeded expectations on last spring's math MCAS. She's one of the hardest workers I know, and she deserves at least a fair shot. Mayor Wu, Superintendent Skipper, school committee members, take a cue from the children forced to testify and advocate for their right to an education tonight. Be brave and do the hard work. You can undo this plan of targeted exclusion. You owe it to my sisters to look at and analyze the data coming out of tiers 7 and 8 now, not in five years. We implore you to listen to Mr. Cardet Hernandez. Give points to only targeted students who are economically disadvantaged. Stop giving points to children for simply going to school with disadvantaged students. We also encourage you to fix your math. Each She's tier should have an amount of seed proportional to the number of applicants who live in that tier. And while you're at it, use the energy you seem to reserve for excluding students from certain schools to fix your failing public high schools. Excuse so me, we're not Tatum. arguing over the same three Tatum. schools Sorry, over and over again. Jill, important to note here that BPS published a number, which was 100.2, that you need 100.2 to get in if you lived in tier seven into Boston Latin School. That is a number that is impossible for some students to achieve. Therefore, it is exclusionary and it has to be you got to wonder, is this against the law to do that, right? So this begs a question. It also, Jill, overall, this just begs a question around quality of our high schools, right? Like, well, that, what is it was the plan? So, it was so, I mean, they were so articulate about, here's why I feel like I only have a few options. Yeah. And you know yeah. what? If you want to give me lots of other options, school committee, I'm open to them. Right. None and of these kids were shutting down any other opportunity. No they were saying, I want AP courses. I want access to arts. I want access clubs, to sports. I want, right. Yeah. And, and I, need, I need a community of learners and a community of teachers who are willing to push all of us in order and to until, achieve. Until the district comes up with a plan for high schools, and we've talked about this over and over again, yeah. we've yet to see how our, all of our high schools are going to improve and give all of our kids access to a great education. So then we moved on to more public comment. Here there were a number of students who were talking about the district's intention to move the O'Brien School to the old West Roxbury Academy site. It's the site that's been closed, and I think it was condemned because it was unsafe for students. They definitely moved all of the students out because it was unsafe. I think it's also built on swampland, which creates, obviously, additional complications if you're trying to renovate and rebuild there. Eight students gave eloquent testimony about how they value their experience at the O'Brien, sharing personal stories, talking about how detrimental it would be to move to West Roxbury. Their concerns included the amount of additional transportation time that it would take. Someone, one of the kids from East Boston said, you know, it's, it's, you sort of are making it absolutely impossible for students from East Boston to attend one of the three exam schools, if you put it so far away, uh, especially if I'm going to participate in extracurriculars and you're not going to provide sufficient transportation. They also they also expressed concerns about how it would change the diversity of the school, losing part of the school's identity, and articulating that there are benefits that are tied to the O'Brien's current location in Roxbury. There was not much advocacy, but a little bit for moving the school in public testimony. And then we also heard from a parent advocating 
for the district to reconsider the current site, which is based on the city's own plan proposal, which leaves buildings that are currently a part of the Madison Park and O'Brien campus completely vacant. Last month, the ceiling began falling in four basement classrooms at OB. So we absolutely need a renovated state-of-the-art campus, and so does Madison Park. The final version for the city's proposal for renovating Madison Park was due in August. It's October, and it still hasn't been released. But if you look at the most recent draft of the Madison redesign proposal, you can see that all the proposals on the table leave buildings 3, 5, and 6 available for another school. Option 2 leaves buildings 2, 3, 5, and 6 available for another school. So we immediately see a simple alternative to moving the O'Brien to West Roxbury. Our current campus is 1 million square feet of viable, buildable land. None of it is swamp. Well, Jill, first first of all, I think while this is not on the agenda, the O'Brien and the Madison Park move was not on the agenda last night. It's, it is an issue that has been unresolved. And well, it also is not a part of the Green New Deal. Right. It is like this arbitrary. It's just out there. Yeah. And, and but it's a big it deal. It seems like the mayor and the superintendent just continue to kind of push it forward without answering all these key questions right. and without the key stakeholders involved in the process. Right. So we're still left with the same questions, although we did hear during this parent testimony that there is this plan for this master Madison Park that is going to leave buildings vacant. You know, look, we also have the Timothy School, we have the Taft School, we have all these other buildings that could be utilized as swing space while construction occurs. There is other alternatives to this plan, but there is no Green New Deal plan. There is no plan for this, like no details around this movement. There's no it's details so, around funding either. There's no funding right? question. So right, like right. how real is this whole conversation and why does the superintendent and the mayor continue to stir up all of this frustration? Strange. And I, I mean... I, it just it's taking up a lot of headspace, obviously, for the communities who feel like they're going to be impacted by this. It feels like you either need to foster a good conversation full of facts and information, or you need to relinquish that maybe you need to suggest that maybe it's more of an idea than, <laughs> right, than, in, than, right. than something that's actually going to happen. Right, but I they don't refuse know, to but do it, that. Yeah. But the litmus test of any good policy or any good plan, Jill, is you know not having students spend their time going to the school committee chambers to testify at night because they're so concerned about it, right? So yeah. like, if you don't have that happen, maybe you got a good plan. But if you continuously have people show up, take time out of their lives to go testify physically on the basics of up. this, you got a problem. It, it physically showed up, and, and many of them mentioned that they showed up to represent the voice of their parents as well because their parents were working and unable to yeah, attend school committee right. meeting. So the meeting then moved on to two reports. Both were required by the state. There was a report on transformation schools and a report on inclusion. The first report was on transformation schools. Right, Jill. So this is a quarterly report that is required by the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education as part of the district improvement plan that has been decided upon between the district and the state. We've seen this report before. It was nice to see in this report that there was some student data from the MCAS. So we've talked about this before. We've said, look, there is no student data. Well, we got some student data last night. And here's what we saw in this report, Jill. We saw basically that some schools, there's about 39 schools in the transformation group. And we saw that some schools were doing a little bit better 
Mm-hmm. And some schools were doing the same or worse. Right. And it was kind of a mixed bag. Right. We also saw that the growth percentages for students overall and in the subgroups was low growth. It kind of matches the rest of the district. There's not much difference. Right. So still concerning, not a huge amount of transformation happening. And we heard some good questions from members around this, starting with Dr. Stephen Alkins, who asked the first question about a subgroup of black students and the level of support and growth that we're seeing. I have a couple of questions, but one that's particularly burning. I'm wondering what your office is particularly thinking about why the current level of supports are not necessarily working for Black students as opposed to the other groups that you've seen in terms of the improvements. Mm -hmm. And Mike Sabin, Executive Director of District and School Transformation, gave this response. I'm hesitating to respond because I'm seeing that our Black students have low growth in mathematics particularly, and I'm noticing that there. I'm not noticing the same pattern in literacy. So I'm thinking about what might be causing that difference. And and so I think it would be better for me not to answer a, a simplistic answer for that one subgroup, other than to say that with each school and across the network, we're really trying to dive into this data for every grade level and for every student subgroup to look for the patterns at that particular school and address that. The quality school plans that schools uh, right ask for them uh, to target specific subgroups. And Jill, I would expect a little bit more of a response here around how are we serving our students, our blacks, or any subgroup in these schools. Well, there was no response. There, there was no there response. Was, there right, was sort right. of a, I don't want to respond. And if I'm going to respond, I should respond on a school by school basis. But then Mike also said that he pays a lot of time, like his daily work is in looking at things on a school by school basis. And therefore, he should have had at least a point of view to share with Dr. Well, I, I, Elkin. There are some schools in, in the report last night that seem to have made dramatic improvement. My recommendation on this would be, let's talk about what's going on in those schools who are seeing dramatic improvement in subgroups that we're concerned about particularly black students in this category, where Dr. Stephen Elkins is saying, I'm concerned about the growth of black students in transformation schools. So it would have been nice for the district to then say, here's where we're seeing good growth and strong growth, and here's the practices that are leading to that. But instead, we heard we actually are not sure what's going on. And then member Brandon Cardet hernandez in terms of growth, noted that the data presented last night represented low growth, not average growth. And there were questions about whether the district really has anything to celebrate when it comes to transformation schools. Anything below 50% is not average growth, correct? Correct. So if we're on slide five, I think, like I see how we're doing this comparison, but given the transformation status of the lowest performing schools in the state, they wouldn't just need comparable growth. We would actually have to have accelerated growth for it to be real progress, right? To really be narrowing opportunity gaps. Yeah. In reality, Jill, like growth is 50%. Um, typically, a typical year of growth is 50% growth. That, that number would be 50. And we're seeing like 40 in transformation schools. And this kind of matches the rest of the district across all subgroups. This is not any different. So again, it kind of begs the question, why do we have transformation schools if they are not transforming? I, I completely agree with you. And Vice Chair Michael O'Neill then asked if we should be doubling down on a strategy that doesn't appear to be working, especially when there are such a large number of transformation schools. There are nearly 40 transformation schools. So that is a third of the district. That's not a small number of schools. We have a budget and we're not seeing rapid improvement. 
we're seeing improvement, but we're not seeing rapid improvement. And we're seeing some schools slipping. So superintendent, I'd love to hear from you. Sure. What are you concerned about? Chair Robinson then went on to ask about the quality of teaching and the need for good teachers in every classroom. Is there a gap in the literally the quality of teaching? Hmm. What is going on in classroom? I mean, I haven't been in many classrooms this year, but in the past, I've gone into schools that have two fourth grade classrooms and they're doing the same thing. One teacher has got the kids up and with her and everything is going great. And you walk into another classroom, same curriculum, but you know, there's no excitement. There's no engagement. Jill, I think this was a great summary of this presentation was like, what is it that creates uh, good outcomes for kids? And I think nobody really talked about this very clearly, but it is about great teachers. And how do we have really strong school cultures, great teachers who work together to serve all students well? And I think that's what we need to hear more about. The meeting then moved on to a report on inclusive education where the superintendent's team presented some concerning data and outlined their vision for rolling out fully inclusive classrooms across the district in every school in the next two years. So Jill, this presentation again is in response to the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education's requirement that the district create a plan to have more inclusive practices for students with disabilities in in Boston public schools. We've had, we've talked about this, right? It's like every school is going to develop their own plan and and we'll figure it out. We heard about cohorts of schools moving forward with creating inclusion plans. And now we have a new iteration of this, which is everybody's going to be do inclusion by grade level bands within like two years, Jill. And so has it shifted to a central, centrally controlled, centrally organized well, strategy? It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. Like yeah. what, what we heard is that there's some components that the district wants to see. They want to see, they're going to put some positions in place. They want to see multi-tiered systems of support, MTSS in every school. They want to see certain structures in every school. But really, it is still up to every school to figure out how they're going to make this work. And they're going to do do so rather quickly. But Jill, before we get into the details of the plan, I do want to talk about some alarming data that was laid out last night. And here's what the district said. They, they said that black male students are over three times more likely to, to be identified as having an emotional impairment and placed in a completely separate setting than their peers. That That is... Highly concerning data. We also heard that multilingual learners were about two and a half times more likely to be identified as having a communication disability and placed in a substantially separate setting. This is where we see the intersection of students with disabilities and multilingual learners and the challenges that we're faced with trying to figure out how to educate those students in the best setting. There's two challenges in this presentation. One challenge is the overrepresentation of some subgroups in special education itself, which really is a regular education problem. Right. Like we have to have regular education solutions to ensure that there is no subgroup who is over identified as having a disability and therefore separated from their peers. The second challenge we have is that we need to have flexibility in our schools where every school needs to have the staffing flexibility, the schedule flexibility to serve any student with any need in their school. So that means that staff may need to move. Staff may need to be flexible during the course of the year. Should a student come in? Should the student's needs change? We need to figure out how to respond to that student's needs at any given point of the year. Right now in Boston Public Schools, we have a very lockstep contract, which is about adults in special education, rather than the needs of kids and the adults responding to those needs. And so I would argue the key here is flexibility, adults working together, with flexibility to ensure that every student gets what they need. 
I think I'm also thinking back to the presentation from the last school committee meeting with the special ed organization, SPEDPAC. Every parent needs to buy into an IEP and sign off on it, right, when a, when a student is put on an IEP. Right. And so the stu- their, their point was, if you move to inclusion, you need to get the parents buy-in. That The parent may not agree to what you're proposing, because I think it all comes down to what the definition of inclusion is and how it's going to be executed. So theoretically, it feels like a really nice, really good idea. But there's there's a big gap between the theory and the actual implementation of inclusion across an entire district, especially when there are circumstances like you describe. But Jill, let's step back here. What was presented last night, it's hard for me to understand how this was a plan. What we heard last night was we're going to move all of our students with disabilities into general education classrooms over the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. And we're also, we heard last night, we're going to move all of our multilingual learners into general education over the next couple of years. And we, Central Office, are going to work really hard together to hold schools accountable for making sure that happens. But nobody talked about the root cause of like, why are students in sub-separate settings? Why has that occurred? And how are we going to have a plan and a budget and action steps to get us to making sure that all kids are fully inclusive? You, Jill, just talked about the parents coming at the last meeting and saying, you need to have all parents sign off on a more inclusive setting. This would mean that we would have to have thousands and thousands of meetings and convince every family that somehow this plan, which has lacking of details, right. is better for their kid than their current plan. And John Mudd, who's an education advocate who testifies at all Boston Public School Committee meetings, brought up this point during public comment. BPS is planning to double down on an English immersion strategy that state and BPS MCAS evidence shows has failed 90% of English learners and English learners with disabilities. As far as I can see, you, as a full committee, are allowing this policy to be implemented without publicly debating or providing some kind of authentic public engagement in your decision making. Jill, there are so many questions about what they proposed last night, including, like, what's the staffing going to look like? Right. It seems like the district currently doesn't have enough staff to execute the plan. Right. They it, said it, that. Right. And they seem to be saying that in just two years from now, there's going to be a special ed teacher in every classroom across the district. But senior deputy superintendent of academics, Linda Chen, points out that they don't have the capacity to do that right now. We will need more bilingual teachers. We know we will need more special education teachers. So we can then start hiring them centrally so that there is a pool of teachers that are ready to go for schools. Because invariably, every year, we can count on needs in that area at the start of school. This comment says exactly what you just said, that there is not enough staff to do this, but it does not explain how we're going to hire these people. How are we going to identify them? Are there enough teachers? How many teachers do we need incrementally in order to execute a plan like this? Where's the budget coming from, especially as we're approaching a fiscal cliff? I don't really understand why we're going to hire teachers and put them all in central office. It doesn't sound like, so is that a different part of the plan that we didn't hear last night? And Who's going to provide the funding for that sort of investment? Is that coming from the city? Is the city bought into this strategy to move everything to inclusion? And so are they going to fund the pieces of this that are going to have to be funded outside of the existing budget? 
there are some complicated questions about yeah. how a district of 125 schools moves to a successful inclusion platform. It, it also begs a question in the Green New Deal and sort of the master planning of merging facilities because yeah. we have so many schools that are under-enrolled. Do they merge together? And then they have more inclusive practices in, in a couple of years. There's all these questions that I think are really outstanding in my mind that are, that are not resolved. And I, I guess the biggest question I have, Jill, is like, will Desi approve this? Like, is this enough for the state to say, it seems like you have a plan to move to more inclusive practices, thank you? Or, or do they say, we have questions and we want to know more? Right. The onus is on Desi to start asking the questions or to say, okay, go. Right. Okay, go does not feel plausible. And for the sake of the students that the city serves, I, I hope that more questions are asked and more diligence is done on this plan as as it moves forward. Uh, before, before we wrap up, we wanted to highlight one other interesting topic that was raised last night by member Cardet Hernandez. Two weeks ago, Boston Public Schools released its facility condition dashboard, and we'll link to that in our blog. We've been playing around with it. The data is very concerning. The average school is receiving a score of just 38 out of 100. Average school is receiving that score. But the dashboard itself, you know, we've we've played around with it a lot. Mr. Cardet Hernandez talks about how he would like to see another level of detail. Here's what he says. I've been playing around with the tool a little bit, and it's great, like lovely to have. I think as a user, and I'm curious the the process for improvement around the dashboard, it's hard to understand sort of what's behind the number and also if we have a value around what those numbers mean. So like as a parent, not even as a school committee member, you know, I'll look at my school and like, is a 30 good? Is a 30 bad? Is a 30, does that create urgency for the system? Is it red? Is it green? Is it yellow? And then I think even more importantly, where I felt lost was what's behind the number? Like what is informing it? Like, is it a building condition concern because there's asbestos? Is there a building condition? Like I couldn't really get to the meaning of it. Jill, he, he's right. It's, it is very confusing. When you go into the tool right. and you type in HVAC, for yes. example, because we're trying to figure out, like, how do we know air quality and, like, understand what the quality of air is in all of our buildings? Which we did, by the way. And we thought we were going, we were drilling down into a specific school, right? Because the average parent, I think, is going to want to know what's going on at yeah. my school. So on this, yeah. So in HVAC, you're not able to do it by individual school. Right. But you type in HVAC and you get a report back on, I don't know what, but right. it said 3.5 million HVAC <laughs> was in the labeled as poor. Right. I have no idea what that means. Right. It's a <laughs> but, big red bar next yeah. to a much smaller blue bar, right. which still had a lot of HVAC in it. Yeah. But I don't know. We don't know if they're measuring each duct or yeah, yeah. What, like, like a we, screw in the, yeah. in the HVAC. Yeah. I have no idea. So, so we would support member Brandon Cardez Hernandez's <laughs> right. um, plea for more information that, you know, if you're going to provide something to the public, it, it should be useful like the data and obviously there's there's a rationale for why a school is getting a 38 out of 100 versus a 75 out of 100 what's in that number like the algorithm is the critical piece the components of the algorithm are the uh, the, you you can't have a green new deal until you understand what the qual like what is going on in every building well by the way you can't have a public conversation you can't you can't have an engagement 
right. and there's already engage there's engagement happening right now jill there was a meeting a couple of nights ago that we attended on green new deal and how do you have conversations without having the underlying data these are public having, dollars this is the right. public budget no one knows how and what buildings will move out of the 38 from 100 category you know with some sort of plan to redevelop them or renovate them all of that stuff is supposed to be a conversation between the city and the public because it's public funding. Yeah. And and so mm -hmm. they're putting the public at, at a great disadvantage by not providing the information that the city has on these buildings. We'll we'll link to this tool in our blog, but we do encourage every family or community member to take a look at it, drill down. Maybe you can find information that we couldn't find, but if you can't, you know, email every school committee member and the superintendent and ask for the underlying data. Like ask for your school report and say, what is the quality of air in my school? What's going on with asbestos in my school? Ask those questions so we can get the real data out there and we can make real decisions. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. We want to hear from you. If you have thoughts or concerns about how BPS is serving your students, please send us an email at podcast at shawfoundation.org. That's S-H-A-H foundation.org. And please come back next week for our first episode of Deep Dives, where we speak with John Deasy, president of the Bezos Foundation and former superintendent in Los Angeles, about how to improve public education across the country. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.